This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone. This is Ryan. I'm on the New Books and History channel, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm here today with former professor of English at the University of St. Joseph in West Hartford, Connecticut, Carrie Driscoll. She's now editor at the Mark Twain Papers and Project at UC Berkeley. Last year, she published Mark Twain Among the Indians and Other Indigenous Peoples, published through University of California Press. This year, the book is out in paperback. Welcome to the show, Professor Driscoll. Thank you, Ryan. What prompted you to study, quote unquote, Mark Twain among the Indians and other indigenous peoples? And what do you mean among the Indians? And how did you devise your title? Well, my title is actually a kind of homage to a sequel, an unfinished sequel that Mark Twain wrote to Adventures of Huckleberry Finn in 1884. Most people don't know that this this work, which was not published in his lifetime, even exists. But it's called Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer Among the Indians. So that's the that's the derivation of my title. In terms of why I undertook this project, it has to do with Mark Twain's status as a cultural icon And a large part of that stature and reputation rests on a notion that he was a champion of the oppressed of all races. And historically, the way that the issue of Twain and race has been addressed in the scholarly community is largely in terms of Black and white. Uh, And there's, I think, um, an important reason for this. Remember that Sam Samuel Langhorne Clemens, Mark Twain's uh, real name, was he he was a boy in the antebellum South, growing up in Hannibal, Missouri, along the Mississippi River. He was born into a slave owning family. The family eventually relinquished those slaves not because of any kind of ideological epiphany, uh, newfound abolitionism but out of financial necessity. They simply needed the money and, you know, slaves were valuable property. Twain grows up, of course, to write Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, which is a very powerful anti-racist novel, although, of course, it is itself mired in in controversy, but that's that's a different um, topic. He has been thought of as a kind of de-Southernized Southerner, who overcomes and divests himself of that early racial bias. 
In the 1880s, he provides general, generous financial support for uh, an African-American artist named Charles Ethan Porter in Connecticut to study painting in Paris for a number of years. He also underwrote the uh, room and board costs for the first African-American law student at Yale University. So, you know, some critics have framed those uh, acts of philanthropy as a kind of attempt at individual reparations. So the story of Mark Twain's attitudes about African-Americans is, I would call, a redemptive narrative, right? It follows a a pretty clear linear linear trajectory, and it's a very sort of feel-good narrative about overcoming, you know, some misguided notions about the humanity of Blacks and, uh, and racial inferiority. The track record of Mark Twain's attitudes about American Indians is a much different story. Uh, it's much more troubling. There is no linear arc to it. And I think for that reason, critics have shied away from it because some of the things that, that he says and, and published about American Indians, for example, in his 1872 travelogue, Roughing It, uh, they're very unsettling. And that flies in the face of this iconic status that, that Mark Twain has, not just in our literature, but I would say in American culture in general. So I thought that this was really work that needed to be done uh, in order to both complicate our understanding of, of Mark Twain, but also to contextualize uh, those well-publicized, well-documented attitudes about African-Americans. You know, you, I think they've been looked at for far too long in, in isolation, when in fact they're part of a much larger picture. So um, when I began this project, you know, I was trained as a, a literary critic. And at the outset, I was really thinking of it primarily as um, conventional literary study. So I would have a chapter on the adventures of Tom Sawyer. Uh, and focus on Injun Joe. And then I would have a chapter on Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer among the Indians and talk about the, the various reasons why um, Mark Twain was unable to, to bring that project to, to fruition. And what I discovered gradually was that that approach wasn't going to work. It was not going to get me really to the heart of, of my, my inquiry. And at that point, I really shifted gears into a kind of cultural studies paradigm. In in the introduction to the book, I talk about the project as a kind of work of literary archaeology, in which place became increasingly central. So the organization of the book is is chronological. I, I begin with his youth and upbringing in the Mississippi River Valley. And I bring it up to the last thing that he wrote about American Indians with just a few months before uh, his death, a piece called Letters from the Earth. So, so I follow uh, a kind of chronology. But in relation to the chronology, I'm looking at specific communities. So what I, what I discovered 
as I began to do this research, there's a handful of articles that have been written in the, what, almost 110 years since Mark Twain's death about the subject of of Twain and, and Indians. But what I've noticed about that scholarship is that it relies in what I regard as a problematic way on generalizations. So for example, there were no Indians in and around Hannibal, Missouri when he was growing up, just as simple as that, right? Or a second generalization, um, everyone out on the Western frontier was prejudiced against Indians. And so what I wanted to do was kind of a deep dive into the history of each of those communities. So antebellum Hannibal, uh, Virginia City, Nevada, Nevada Territory in the early 1860s, Um, Hartford, Connecticut, right, where he spent 17 years from the 1870s up through the early 1890s. And to really try to understand what the awareness of Native peoples was, what kind of reporting he would have encountered about them, um, you know, in, in these various communities, and at what point he really encountered Native people face to face. And so it turned into a kind of much different sort of project than I had originally anticipated or, or envisioned. Um, in terms of the why I chose the title that, that I did, Twain was not literally in firsthand contact with Native peoples for very long, right? That occurs during those years, 1861 to 1864, in Nevada Territory. However, because he was not only a journalist, but got his start, you know, his his schooling ends at around the age of 12, and he becomes what was called in the trade a printer's devil. He would set type, he would wash type, he worked in any number of newspaper offices. And so, and and those newspaper offices, you know, run the gamut from Keokuk, Iowa, to St. Louis, Missouri, to Pennsylvania, to Philadelphia, to New York City. I mean, it's in different regions around the country in which he's encountering often kind of incendiary reports, press reports of Indian massacres. And so that's what I mean about sort of metaphorically among these these representations of of Indians. The the cover of my book is actually an image of an 1884 painting by a man named William Fuller, and it's called Crow Creek Agency, Dakota Territory. And what I love about this image is that it really portrays the changing circumstances of Native peoples in the second half of the 19th century. So, you know, foregrounded, you have uh, several Native men who are wearing, you know, top hats, suit coats, right? They're, they're wearing Western dress, but right behind them are teepees, right? And then off on the right is a Christian church. And at the very, very um, back of, of the image and this is what sealed the deal for me in terms of, of choosing it for my cover, is a steamboat. And of course, you know, one of the famous things about Mark Twain, um, and allegedly the reason or how he 
got his pen name uh, is that he was a riverboat pilot on the Mississippi in the 1850s up until the outbreak of the war in 1861. How did family memory of the 1781 Montgomery Massacre, especially narratives promulgated by Samuel Clemens's mother, contribute to the Jackson's Island mimetic slaughter, as well as the ethno-racial identity biography and demise of Injun Joe in the 1876 Adventures of Tom Sawyer? Well, first of all, let me explain a little bit about uh, Sam Clemens's mother, whose name was Jane Lampton Clemens. Uh, she was a very gifted storyteller and, and a, an enormously sort of gifted with verbal wit. And there are a number of autobiographical reminiscences in which Twain actually credits her as the kind of inspiration for why he became a writer. I mean, they loved, they had this wonderful sort of repartee, right, where they would tease one another and, uh, you know, try to get each other going. So, so Jane was the family storyteller, and she was also the repository of family history. And as the story goes, right, she, would, she had a bedtime story that she would regale her children with. And it was the story of the so-called Montgomery Massacre, in which her grandmother's family on the uh, Kentucky uh, frontier during the Revolutionary War era um, were, their compound was attacked at dawn, beset, right, for no apparent reason, by a group of nameless savages in that attack, his Mark Twain's great-grandmother's family, right? So I know this gets confusing because we're talking about Jane Clemens's grandmother, right? So Jane Clemens's grandfather and her brother were killed in that attack. And a number of other members of the family were taken briefly into captivity. Jane Clemens repeated this story, you know, in kind of awe-inspiring, horrific, graphic detail to her children. Uh, you know, what kind of a bedtime story is that? I mean, one to guarantee nightmares for sure, and that children would not be able to get to to sleep very, very comfortably. But, but nonetheless, this was a very familiar story that was imprinted in the minds of the Clemens children from a very early age. And when Jane Clemens died in 1890, Sam's older brother, Orion, so Orion is 10 years Sam's senior. Sam is born in 1835. Orion is born in 1825. Um, Orion said that she never could stand to, you know, the subject to talk about Indians until her dying day. Now, what's fascinating to me about the story of the Montgomery massacre, when I, again, when I began to do this research, I was looking for, in effect, a kind of smoking gun, right? Thinking that there must have been a cause for this animus that he expressed so strongly uh, throughout his his career. And I was thwarted in, in that quest because what I discovered was that there was no 
apparent reason why he felt as negatively as he did. But one of the um, explanations that traditionally has been offered right, by other critics has to do with this Montgomery massacre. However, right, Orion grew up listening to that story as well. And Orion, who Abraham Lincoln appointed as the secretary to James Nye, who was the governor of Nevada Territory in 1861, that's how Sam ends up in the West, because he goes along as Orion's sidekick uh, out there. Orion was a really passionate advocate for, for Native people. And early in the 1890s, even writes a poem that he publishes in a newspaper in Chicago called The Reform Savage. So, you know, given individual subjectivities, right, we can say, well, Orion was able to kind of transcend that paradigm or that mindset that was instilled in him by his mother. And perhaps for whatever reason, Sam was not. So I think that the memory of the Montgomery massacre is one that does stay with him, but it's inadequate to explain the long-standing antipathy toward Native peoples that you can trace in, in Twain's writing. So what I gradually came to realize, I mean, let me, let me back up a, a moment here. What I, what I was attempting to do was to be as comprehensive as I could, looking not only at Twain's published writings, but his letters, his notebooks, his speeches, right? And try to assemble every reference and his early journalism as well. Um, try, to, try to assemble every reference that I could find to American Indians. And what I realized, and in this regard, the, the really pioneering research of Philip Deloria, uh, whose brilliant book, Playing Indian, um, is really instrumental to, uh, to my undertaking. Um, that notion of, I mean, Twain sort of vacillates or oscillates between a fascination with Indians and savagery, and then a real visceral repugnance. And in my book, I trace out a number of you know, moments, both textual and otherwise, where either Mark Twain himself or some of his characters play Indian, all right, sort of donning this mask or this guise of savagery for the, the absolute unfettered freedom that, that it allows them briefly. So I don't know that I've answered your, your question. Um, in terms of the Montgomery massacre, uh, there are many references in Twain's work, in his letters, to scalping. So I think your prompt uh, was asking about the chapter in The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, where Tom Huck and Joe Harper have run away all right, to an uninhabited island. And first, they play pirates. And then that loses its allure. And the other two boys begin to pine 
uh, for a return to civilization. They want to go back to St. Petersburg. And Tom is desperate, all right, to make them stay. And so what he proposes is that they switch things up a little bit. And instead of being pirates, they play Indians instead. And what they do is enact a kind of symbolic slaughter of an English settlement. So, you know, they, they scalp, uh, you know, in their imaginations with, with abandon. Um, on the one hand, for Twain, you know, scalping is kind of the consummate expression of bloodthirsty savagery. And yet, kind of ironically, as, as a counterpoint, in my book, I trace out a number of instances where Twain himself talks about scalping. So I would just like to give you a couple of of those examples. So late in life, Mark Twain was awarded an honorary doctoral degree from Oxford University in in England. And, And just try for a moment to imagine how heady an experience that must have been for someone whose education ends right before he's a teenager and is essentially an an autodidact right so he's over there and he is being just feted and celebrated uh, and given this honorary degree and he in his autobiography he says this i take the same childlike delight in a new degree that an indian takes in a fresh scalp and I take no more pains to conceal my joy than the Indian does, right? So, you know, in this respect, he is portraying himself, he's characterizing himself as an Indian. And perhaps even more tellingly, he marries a woman whose name is Olivia Langdon, and she is a Northerner. She is also from a family that has very strong abolitionist ties. Her parents, in fact, sheltered Frederick Douglass in 1838 on his movement north as he was escaping from from slavery in Maryland. So, you know, they do say opposites attract, but we have this Southern boy, right, born into a slave-owning family who marries a Northern heiress, right, whose family is very staunchly abolitionist. Uh, He had, you know, he, he was not wealthy, uh, he did not have, um, what shall I say, a sterling reputation, right, in the late 1860s. And so Olivia's parents were, ah, you know, uh, rather unsure about, about this fellow and whether he was uh, an appropriate husband or suitor for, uh, for, her, for their daughter. And he proposed a number of times and was rejected, but he persisted. And finally, right, when she accepted, right, his proposal of marriage, he wrote a letter to uh, one of his friends and said, hurrah, hurricanes of applause. I am so happy I want to scalp somebody, right? So, so you have this very strange, right, visceral reaction, right, against savagery on the, on the one hand, and then this ideation, this imaginative ideation of himself as an Indian that that comes up throughout his career. So you've, you've answered a couple uh, questions there. 
Let's move to how and why uh, Clemens' 1860s sojourn in Nevada territory, as well as the ensuing Humboldt prospecting trip, um, and his contributions to the territorial empire, further shaped his conceptions of Native Americans. Also, how did his brother Orion, who served as uh, ex officio superintendent of Indian Affairs, how, how did he help to remedy these conceptions? Well, as I as I just briefly mentioned, uh, Orion was the secretary to the territorial governor, a man named James Nye. James Nye was a former New York City police commissioner, so he was absolutely new to the West and really did not like being out in in the wilds of of the Great Basin, and so Nye would decamp whenever possible for extended stays to San Francisco. When Nye was out of the territory, Orion became the acting governor. And one of his roles as acting governor was that he was also the ex-officio superintendent of Indian Affairs. So in the process of the research that I did for the book, I I spent a great deal of time at the Nevada State Archives in in Carson City looking through the territorial records from that period and recovered a number of letters that Orion had written in this capacity back to Washington, right, to various, you know, the Treasury Secretary, the Secretary of the Interior, et cetera, talking about the real clash of, you know, kind of competing land claims. For example, you know, he writes this one very poignant letter about the the Paiutes need um, the, the pine nut trees for their sustenance, but the settlers need the pine nut trees for firewood. You know, what am I to do? And so there is a pretty extensive documentary record of Orion saying, all right, publicly, you know, to high-level officials at the national level, you know, uh, the Paiutes are a hard-working people. You know, they need our support. So, an open question that I had as I was undertaking this research is, where did this hostility come from in Mark Twain? And Again, going back to that generalization that I had mentioned about, oh, everyone in the West was was prejudiced against, against Indians. What I discovered about Nevada Territory in the early 1860s is that that inner circle of the political elite, um, you know, Orion, his brother, the various Indian uh, agents, Warren Wasson, Jacob Lockhart, etc., and even to some extent, James Nye himself, had what I would describe as progressive views of of Indians. You know, they did not see them as unredeemable savages, but people who could be um, brought into sort of the fold uh, as productive members of of society. Uh, Twain, it's in Virginia City that he begins his journalistic career at a newspaper called The Territorial Enterprise. And I also looked into who his colleagues were at at the Enterprise. So you have a fellow journalist whose name is Dan DeQuill, uh, the author of an 1876 uh, history of the the Comstock Lode phenomenon called um, the, the Big Bonanza. DeQuill was a fluent speaker of Paiute. He befriended 
natives in the local community. He was a really trusted uh, colleague and ally. For about six months, Clemens and Dan DeQuill were roommates. Uh, So he's in very close proximity with people who have what I would describe as progressive or enlightened views of Native people. Yet, all right, his response is largely mocking, indifferent, refusing to take their plight seriously. And, and, and I found that, found that troubling because in some ways it's out of sync with, um, with the people that he's in closest communication with. How and why do you contextualize Mark Twain's 1862 to 75 petrified man hoax essays, the 1869 Innocence Abroad, and the 1872 Roughing It, particularly you know in regards to Williams's caricatures, um, the Digger representation, um, and the erasure of Native labor? Uh, well, the petrified man hoax is a really good example of what I was just alluding to about this kind of mocking, uh, irreverent attitude, a refusal to take this issue seriously. So initially, Clemens's contributions to the enterprise carried no byline. They were anonymous. And that's the case with with Petrified Man, which is one of the very first things of his that appears in in the newspaper. And historically, uh, the way that that piece has been read is that it's just a kind of flight or testimony to Clemens's unfettered imagination. Uh, There was a kind of culture in uh, territorial journalism of making things up, right? Uh, testing the gullibility of, of readers. Dan DeQuill, his colleague, was very adept at this. And so Clemens is simply trying his hand, right? How far can I go? Uh, and you know, what will my readers believe? And so the story for, for readers who aren't familiar with it, or listeners who aren't familiar with it, uh, is that up in the mountains, all right, near Gravelly Ford, which is east of, of uh, Virginia City by a considerable distance, a frozen man, right, who's been turned to stone has been found. And he is seated on the bedrock, but his hands are placed in, in a very strange way. And he deliberately kind of misleads his readers by talking about his foot and then his left hand and then uh, different aspects of his body. So what you don't realize is that the gesture of the petrified man is that he has one hand um, at the end of his nose with his fingers extended so that in fact he's thumbing his nose at these, these gullible readers. And so the way that um, Mark Twain scholars have read this is that, oh, you know, it has nothing to do with Nevada territory. It's, it's just a really good joke, right? Well, what I did was to take 
a different historically informed right position on that hoax that really centers on Gravelly Ford as a location, which was uh, a dividing line between Paiute and Shoshone territory. And also it was on one of the, it was a stopping place on one of the the main pioneer trails to, to the West. And it was a site where there had been a number of what were called in the 19th century depredations, uh, including a massacre which had occurred about a year before Twain writes this piece. One of the things that I think it's important to know about Mark Twain is that he was an avid, almost a zealous reader of newspapers throughout his life. Uh, He was exceptionally well-informed about current events. Uh, When he lived in Hartford, he used to subscribe to probably five or six different New York City newspapers. And that's in addition to the local newspapers that he read that were being published in, in Hartford. So without question, he was aware of the depredations and the massacres that had occurred at, at Gravelly Ford, so that the location is, is not at all arbitrary. And, and what I argue in the book is that it, it's not an idle joke, petrified man. Instead, it advances the script of Manifest Destiny by turning Indians to stone, erasing them from the cultural landscape, right, by relegating them to, to the past. Another uh, key point that that I make in in my book is that, again, referring to those earlier scholars who have touched on the subject of Twain's attitudes about Native Americans, when they do acknowledge the bias, they say, okay, it was a misguided uh, prejudice in his youth that was overcome once he matured and moved to the East. In fact, in reality, right, Twain's attitudes about, the attitudes that he expressed about Indians while he was living in Nevada territory were far more benign than those he expressed once he relocated to the East. So Roughing It, published in 1872, is a travelogue about his years out in the West. So not only in Nevada, but his journalistic beginnings in California, in San Francisco, and then at the end, his uh, a really pivotal trip that he makes to what was then called the Sandwich Islands, Hawaii. So it's about the 1860s, but it's written after he has married this Northern heiress, Olivia Langdon, that I spoke about earlier. And he has become part owner of the Buffalo Express newspaper. So, I mean, his class circumstances have changed. His finances are, you know, far more robust. And he's also a father, right? So there's a real transformation. He's writing retrospectively about the West from the vantage point of the East. And roughing it, particularly his depiction of the Digger Indians, um, is is you know, stands as, as one of the most troubling representations of Native peoples throughout his, his entire canon. 
in the context of the Modoc War, uh, media depictions of Red Cloud, um, as well as those Lakota Sioux 1870 delegations to Washington, D.C., can you please explain the racial vitriol in Mark Twain's 1870 The Noble Red Man, uh, quote-unquote, and purported delegation spoofs in the Buffalo Morning Express? And how and why did Joaquin Miller have a liberalizing influence, particularly vis-a-vis Twain's daughter, Susie, and the memory of that spiritual epiphany? Well, The Noble Red Man, uh, first of all, for for some context, is a little-known essay that Mark Twain published in a New York City literary periodical called The Galaxy. He he grew um, increasingly kind of tired of the daily kind of rigor and demands of newspaper journalism. And he was looking to break into magazine writing. And then ultimately his goal was, you know, to become a a writer of of novels and, and nonfiction. The Noble Red Man is actually the starting point or the inspiration for, for my book, because when I first encountered it, I simply couldn't believe that Mark Twain had written it. It flew dramatically in the face of everything that I thought I knew about about Twain. Um, And I say in in my book that without question, it is the ugliest thing that he ever wrote about about natives. Um, Without question, I am quoting myself here, Twain's harshest depiction of Indians the hateful crescendo of a racial bias rooted in the tales of frontier violence his mother had told him as a child. So my my interest was in trying to understand where that came from. What prompted this kind of explosion of of vitriol uh, from Mark Twain? 1870, right? September 1870 is when it's published. It's not written at a time of war. You know, it's not written in the immediate aftermath of uh, some horrific massacre. You know, for example, if it had come out in the summer of 1876 after Custer's defeat at Little Bighorn, it might seem to make more sense in terms of its topicality. But it lands right during, you know, uh, the administration of Ulysses S. Grant and the so-called peace policy. You know where where Grant was sending Quakers out as agents for Indians on on reservations, trying to prevent um, further you know outbreaks of of violence, and so in Mark Twain there is a kind of what I would describe as a geographical tension, uh, where as a Southerner who moves to the West and then ultimately ends up in the East, as he's kind of establishing himself as a writer in the East, part of the authority that he insists on repeatedly, and it comes up a couple of different, at a couple of different key moments in The Noble Red Man, is that I have been in the West, I lived in the West, right? I know that this is true. This is an accurate portrait of Indians because I saw it many times in Nevada. So I think what, what in terms of context, the cultural context of the noble red man, he sees among 
the Easterners that he's now, you know, rubbing elbows with, a kind of romanticized uh, view of Indians that is very sympathetic uh, toward them and the way in which they're being mistreated. And the noble red man is Twain's attempt to correct what he sees as a kind of dangerous and misguided sympathy for the savagery of, of, you know, these creatures. I mean, at times he even denies their fundamental humanity. So that's how I would um, specifically kind of address the question that, that you just asked me. What I discovered in terms of, okay, what was happening around the time of the genesis of this essay? And there was a a landmark visit of not one, but two different Sioux delegations to Washington, D.C., one led by Red Cloud, the other by Spotted Tail, to negotiate with the president to um, put an end to the the warfare, right? The the crisis over the, the Bozeman Trail, et cetera. And when he writes and publishes The Noble Red Man, he's living in Buffalo. And as I said a moment ago, he is part owner of the Buffalo Express. The Buffalo Express is carrying daily reports about the visit of these two Lakota delegations. And part of those reports are telegraphically being reproduced from the major Eastern newspapers. But then there is some local reporting by Buffalo Express staff members. Unfortunately, those pieces are unsigned. I would love to know if any of them were actually authored by by Mark Twain, but unfortunately, I I can't prove that. But in essence, uh, without going into too much detail, the representation of the Lakota delegations in the Eastern media was over the top in terms of its sentimentality and its romanticization. Uh, You know, Red Cloud is described as a kind of Greek god, a perfect Hercules in terms of his physique. And this is, the noble red man is a kind of counterpoint or or a reaction to to that. Um, And that's, I think, uh, you know, it addressed too explicitly all right, sophisticated Eastern readers, because the Galaxy, right, the venue where it was published, was a literary journal, right? So he's kind of attacking, all right, those naive Eastern views and saying, hey, I'm a Westerner. You should pay attention to me because I know what I'm talking about. You've just read about Indians in in books. Now, in terms of Joaquin Miller, uh, he encounters Miller when he is over in London in 1870-73 for an extended stay, again, with his wife and uh, his child, his daughter Susie. Um, and this is when the, the Modoc War is, uh, you know, sort of an international news phenomenon. And because um, Joaquin Miller had, had just written his, his book, all right, about the Modoc, um, Clemens is getting a different, more supportive, sympathetic view about that conflict than he would have, I think, otherwise endorsed. And it begins to kind of soften, all right, his 
you know, antagonism or, or his animus. And I should just also say that uh, what I discovered over and over again, right, in the process of doing this research is that you have discrete expressions of sympathy that kind of bubble up to the surface in, in Twain's work. Here's one instance of them, all right? Things that he has said about the mistreatment of the Modoc. Um, another comes up in the 1880s when he very famously writes a letter to President Grover Cleveland protesting something that he had seen in the Hartford Current, um, a report that a New Mexico county was offering a bounty on Apache scalps. And he says to the president, you have the power to stop this. This, this simply you know, cannot, cannot be. But those expressions of sympathy, while we would want to kind of you know, think of them as turning points, uh, epiphanies in which he's moving towards progressive enlightenment, instead they tend to be very short-lived and then they are followed by a lapse into more regressive modes of thinking. And I see this pattern over and over and over again in, in his work, you know, much to my great mystification. How and why did Mark Twain's 1880s marginalia and works by Francis Parkman, especially those passages on the spiritual practices of the Iroquois and Huron, mark a fundamental shift in his conceptions of Native Americans? Well, this, again, goes back to what I was saying earlier about the both fascination with Indians and the visceral repugnance toward toward Indians. Uh, as an autodidact, Twain was just an insatiable reader, and he gravitated not towards fiction, which I, I find interesting given that he is primarily known to us as a novelist, but to history. And Francis Parkman, he owned a set of Parkman's works and described Parkman in writing as a man whom I worshipped. And Fortunately, um, although Clemens's library was sold at auction after his death and widely dispersed, some of the volumes that he owned of, of Parkman's histories have been recovered, and they're at the Mark Twain Papers and Projects uh, Project in Berkeley, uh, so we can examine them and see uh, what what his response was to uh, to certain things that that Parkman said. Twain was in the habit of annotating his books. He wrote often uh, at great length in, in the margins, and he was a very active, engaged reader. So he, he actually sort of enters into a debate with the author that he's reading. And he, you know, he questions, he counters he will sometimes, you know, violently disagree with with uh, a statement, and so in one of one of his favorite books and the marginalia in the the Jesuits in North America in the 17th century has marginalia in pencil and several different colors of pen, which scholars state uh, indicates that they they're the marks of his rereading of the volume at different points in his life. And so in this book, the chapter that, it, that has the most extensive marginalia is about Iroquois spirituality. 
he reads this book in 1881 for, for the first time. And we know that because he specifically requests that the volumes be sent to him when he's on a business trip up to Montreal, Canada. So we can, we can date it very specifically. And, you know, I think I've sketched out um, in, in my prior responses the negativity of his, his views about Indians up until this point. So, you know, he brings with him to his reading of Parkman some, some baggage, right? But when he gets to the chapter on Iroquois religion, it's almost like a light bulb goes on, uh, you know, in, in his mind, because he begins to see that their spiritual practices, over and over again in the margins, he writes this comment, good sense, good sense. Uh, and so that, the, the way I argue it, sort of opens up a new possibility or a new dimension in terms of how he's going to understand these alleged savages. Now, this, this, the issue of Twain's attitudes about Christianity and religion in general are one that kind of far exceed the time that we've got allotted here. You know, some people say he was an atheist. Others say he was an agnostic. Others say that he, although he was not especially kind of a regular churchgoer, that he was indeed uh, a Christian. But let's just say he had a a checkered relationship with Christianity and specifically with the representation of God in, in the Bible. So the comments in the margins of the Parkman volume create a contrast between the Bible and Iroquois spiritual beliefs. So not only does he say good sense, but, you know, uh, there's one passage where Parkman is describing the Iroquois concept of, uh, of heaven, right? And, and Twain comments, you know, give them harps and it's no different than Bunyan's heaven, right? But there's, a, there's a, a, I think, a watershed moment in one of those readings of, of Parkman, and I do believe it's the first one in 1881, where Parkman is, is recounting a conversation between an Iroquois chief and one of the Jesuit missionaries and uh, talks about how the concept of God, right? It, let, me, let me back up a little bit. He, he gives us an anecdote and the conclusion that Twain draws from this anecdote is that God, therefore, is an Algonquin, right? So we, there, the reading of Parkman becomes sort of the foundation for reading a few years later of another very important book to him by a military officer whose name is Colonel Richard Irving Dodge, uh, who lived among the Plains Indians for about 30 years. And one of the books that he wrote that Clemens owned not one but two copies of is called The Plains of the Great West and uh, Their Inhabitants. And Dodge also has a chapter, not about the Iroquois, obviously, but about Cheyenne religion, right, in which he describes a dualistic notion of a good God and a bad God. And again, 
given Clemens's habit of extensively annotating his his uh, his his reading, we know that he was really sort of almost smitten with this notion of a good God, right? You and a, who you do not have to propitiate with prayers, right? You don't have to seek his support or his intervention. He's just always there, right? Looking out, as as Twain says, for his engine, right? But it's the bad God that you have to worry about who is always kind of seeking to, to wreak havoc and to ruin your plans. And he, Clemens says in his marginalia, you know, this concept of God is so much better, right? It makes so much more sense than the Christian notion of God who, which combines both that benevolence and particularly in, in relation to the Old Testament, the malevolence, all right, of, you know, Yahweh, who is a very, very angry God. So when, after he finishes the composition of Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and, and you'll recall how that novel ends, right? Huck says, I got a light out for the territory ahead of the rest because Aunt Sally, she wants to civilize me, and I can't stand it. I've been there before, right? This notion of lighting out for the territory is sort of the segue, the direct segue for Clemens's conceptualization of the sequel, right? The ill-fated, unfinished sequel, Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer Among the Indians. So he imagines, right, well, what would it be like if Tom, Huck, and Jim went westward? Right, and they're on the Oregon Trail, and uh, you know I, I won't go into uh, a plot summary of of this work, but they do encounter a group of Sioux, uh, and they also encounter a pioneer family who uh, are very graphically uh, slaughtered and massacred uh, in an early chapter of of that manuscript fragment, but. The key figure in terms of this uh, Twain's notion of, of native religion is has to do with uh, the scout, the Indian scout who comes to their rescue uh, to help to try to help them pursue the Indians who've killed the parents but taken the daughters into captivity along with the runaway slave Jim. Uh, and this scout has lived among the Indians thinks of them as worse than than animals and yet Twain writes has adopted their religion and one of the um, sort of thunderbolts right that that um, I came across in in researching this work is that in the margins of his uh, his copy of, of Dodge's book there are clues even though the manuscript is unfinished, as to what direction he might have taken, right, if he had been able to complete it. And the, the notation is H for Huck gets converted. And I think it's impossible to overestimate the importance of that idea because, you know, some people would argue that Adventures of Huckleberry Finn is the great American novel. If, if it's not the great American novel, it's certainly one of them. Um, and the prospect of an Indianized Huck, right, combining, right, red and white, you know, what might that have meant for the future of American literature? I mean, to me, that's it's almost mind boggling. 
So you've answered uh, the next question. Let's move on to uh, the uh, the Connecticut Indian Association. What was the significance and insignificance of the progressive and female-dominated Connecticut Indian Association to Mark Twain's shifting conceptions of Native Americans, especially after his 1870s re- relocation to Nook Farm in Hartford? Um, in your response, uh, can you please uh, focus on his attendance at lectures, his skepticism of Native enfranchisement vis-a-vis African-Americans, and that surprising 1886 New Mexico bounty scoundrelism letter to President Grover Cleveland? Certainly. Uh, so as I had explained at, at the outset of, of our talk, geography is is a really kind of anchor or a key anchor in in my analysis. So I tried to avoid sweeping generalizations, you know, e.g. everyone in the West was biased against Indians, and instead focus on kind of the dynamics of uh, specific communities at a particular moment in, in time. So, you know, I did that with Virginia City in the early 1860s. Uh, and when I wrote the chapter on the Connecticut Indian Association, I'm specifically looking at Hartford in the 1880s. So uh, again, just to you know, remind everyone, Twain lives in Hartford from 1871 to 1891. He's there for, for 20 years. And uh, the community had a very um, specific kind of flavor, all right? It was liberal, it was socially progressive, and it was committed to any number of kind of philanthropic causes, prison reform, all right, um, assisting the, uh, the poor immigrant population of the city. So again, I began with a very basic question. I knew about, you know, the uh, the national reform movements that took hold in the United States advocating for the assimilation and education of, of American Indians. And so I thought to myself, well, what was happening in Hartford during those years? And what, if any, relationship did Twain have to it? Now, I'm someone who, you know, was born and raised in Hartford, Connecticut, and I never knew about the existence of the Connecticut Indian Association. So, you know, all of this was was simply a revelation to me, uh, a, you know, a very small but uh, indefatigable, uh, indefatigable group of local women in 1881 got together and formed a state auxiliary of the National, you know, um, Indian Association. And they were very, um, they, the woman who was the president for almost 30 years of this organization was married to an editor at the Hartford Current, one of the main newspapers in the city. So she had a, a conduit, a kind of open conduit to placing information in the pages of the Current newspaper articles about Indians, but more importantly, editorials that would help to promote uh, her, her cause, their cause, the cause of the Connecticut Indian Association. Their strategy to bring people on board, and it grew from a handful of women to almost a thousand within a matter of just a couple of years. So, so the growth was, was quite remarkable. And I, I really credit 
Sarah Thompson Kinney, the, the president of the organization, with making that, that happen. She was apparently, you know, a very persuasive uh, person who was, was not to be resisted. But the way in which the Indian Association increased their membership was by hosting lectures. Now, these were not political lectures. They were not, you know, exclusively on the subject of what was, you know, called during this time period, the Indian problem. But they were lectures on topics of public interest. You know, the poetry of the British Isles, for example, you know, things about about history. And they would bring in well-known lecturers. Such was the case with a man named Chauncey Depew, uh, who, you know, nowadays is a rather obscure figure, but during his lifetime, he was almost as well known as Mark Twain, right? Very much in demand as uh, as a speaker, known to be very, uh, you know, kind of witty uh, and, and, a, and a kind of superb rhetorician. So they would charge admission to, to these lectures. And then once they had the audience in place, they would pass out leaflets and flyers encouraging people to you know, embrace this cause and to join their organization. In the 1880s, Mark Twain was unquestionably the most celebrated resident in Hartford. And for that reason, Sarah Kinney was very anxious to get him involved with uh, with this group, right? That his, you know, his name in conjunction with the, as, as an endorsement for the Connecticut Indian Association, she thought would be very, very powerful. And so their archives are in the Connecticut State Library in Hartford. And I was, and they were very meticulous, these women, you know, they kept everything. So I was able to comb through the rosters of their annual membership records. And what I discovered is that almost all of the Clemens's Hartford friends, right, the Twitchells, the Warners, Harriet Beecher Stowe, who lived right across the, the, the lawn from him at, at Nook Farm, all of these people were members, or uh, if, you know, because it was a female organization, the women were members, the wives were members, the husbands tended to be to serve on the advisory committee. Nowhere in those membership rosters did I come across the name of either Samuel Clemens or his wife, Olivia. So this really intrigued me, you know, because I do believe that there was a kind of bandwagon phenomenon, right? Everyone at Nook Farm was jumping on board and embracing this cause, except for the Clemens, right? But because Clemens knew Chauncey Depew, he did attend Depew's lecture, and he was even cajoled into sitting on the dais or the platform for that lecture. And it you know, is reported widely in the Hartford newspapers, but it's the one and only time, all right, he does that, which suggests to me, all right, some kind of resistance that he just could not, you know, he couldn't manage to endorse 
this cause for reasons that that I think I've you know laid out pretty pretty clearly in my previous answers. So he resists all of Kinney's overtures to join the organization. But as remember what I said uh, a few moments ago about his reading habits, he loved reading newspapers. And it is estimated that during the 1880s, the Connecticut Indian Association placed probably something like six to 700 pieces in the Hartford Current related to you know, Indian franchisement, assimilation, education. Uh, the Connecticut Indian Association, by the way, had its philanthropic arm was building cottages out on the Omaha reservation and then providing funding for the education of, of young people. The Connecticut Indian Association was also instrumental in the education of the first uh, native physician, a woman named Suzette Laflesh. So, you know, he's, he's not on record as making any financial contributions to, to that, to the cause, but he is, and, and again, this is what I argue in the book, that indirectly, because he reads newspapers so scrupulously, that he's encountering, right, the views, the advocacy of the Connecticut Indian Association, especially, all right, you know, this kind of reaches an apex in February 1886, when he opens up the current and sees this uh, announcement about a, a bounty on Apache scalps. And the headline uh, that, that, you know, Sarah Kinney has placed is a disgrace to civilization. And he, uh, this letter actually exists in uh, the presidential archives of Grover Cleveland. He tears the uh, editorial out and pins it to the letter. I mean, he was, you know, a very kind of, you know, impulsive person. And when he felt strongly about things, he tended to act upon them. And so he reads this and immediately fires off uh, a letter to, to Grover Cleveland. Again, one would think ah, you know, here's, this is going to signal a change, right? And yet, at the same time, he's, he writes the letter to Cleveland, he's also in the midst of composing uh, his novel, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, which is published in 1889, uh, in which he describes the sixth century inhabitants of Arthur's realm, Camelot, as well, alternatively, as a group of polished-up Comanches and white Indians, right? Complete savages. So let's uh, move on to his uh, world tour lectures. So um, in the context of Mark Twain's 1895 relocation to Europe and then those world tour lectures, particularly those six weeks in Australia and Tasmania, what ideas prompted him to question the binaries of savagery and civil quote, quote unquote savagery and civilization? Um, in your response, in your, in your response, can you briefly make sure to address um, his silence on whether U.S. continental expansion am- amounted to imperialism, uh, the disruption of his native black dich- dichotomy, um, and uh, the, that the proclamation board and the material culture of the Tasmanian room? Okay, that that's a, a tall order of, of business, but but I'll do what I can. Um, <laughs> when when Twain 
when Twain left the United States on his so-called world lecture tour, he described himself as a red-hot imperialist, right? That he was someone who advocated, right, um, the export of American democracy and, and principles abroad. That very much changed. It diametrically changed, in fact, by the time he eventually returns to the United States in 1900, uh, at which point he declares that he is an anti-imperialist. And for the last 10 years of his life, he actually served as a vice president of the anti-imperialist league. So, so there is just a major swing in, in his outlook from the 1890s to 1900. And what I argue in in my book is that the World Lecture Tour is really instrumental getting outside the United States. Mark Twain was a lifelong Anglophile. I mean, he really loved Britain, right? And, you know, British, British culture. And so He's bankrupt at this point, and he undertakes a really grueling, I mean, he's 60 years old, all right, and he, he undertakes a trip that will take him to Australia, New Zealand, India, and South Africa for an entire year, right, lecturing, you know, sometimes five nights a week, and he's not in the best of health, but his wife was determined that he would repay his creditors in full. There was going to be no kind of brokering of a deal where, you know, everyone got 50 cents on the dollar or 25 cents on, on the dollar. So, you know, the, the tour is take, is undertaken really under duress. It's not a vacation. It's not something that he wants to do. He needs to make money. And the way in which he's going to make money is twofold, right? Charging admission for these lectures, but he's also going to write a travel book about the experiences. That travel book is published in 1897 in both the United States and England, but it's under two different titles. So the American title is Following the Equator. The British title is More Tramps Abroad. And the two books are not identical, right? There are some very important differences between the two. Not necessarily... Um, the result of kind of authorial intent, but instead a lot of different editorial hands um, involved in in the production of of both volumes. So you know, I think that he he goes on this lecture tour to English speaking colonies, right? And he because I had mentioned that he was not in good health, his he his lectures were sometimes interrupted by periods in which he was bedridden. And while he was bedridden, he was reading, as was his habit, right? And what is he reading? Lots and lots of people were bringing him books. And so he's reading about um, Rosa Prade's Australian, Australian Life, Black and White, James Bonwick's The Lost Tasmanian Race, J.S. Laurie's The History of Australasia. And so he's learning about the colonial history, right? The settling of Australia. And what is remarkable is how similar, how uncannily similar the 
infusion of these colonists echoes what happened in the American West, right? There's a gold rush. There are all of these fortune seekers who are flooding into the region, hoping to get rich quick over overnight. In addition to that, there, Twain kept records of what readings he gave on this lecture tour. So he would often read excerpts from different works. Many of those excerpts were about the American West. So he's reading passages from Roughing It. He's uh, telling the story of Grandfather's Old Ram, which is you know a wonderful tall tale. So the West keeps coming up, all right, in terms of his lecture material. He's reading this history in which there are such blatant, overwhelming similarities between the history of Australia and the history of, of the American West. <clears throat> and he's also, in addition, meeting these people because every, you know, they're so thrilled, you know, this big American celebrity has, has come to, to visit down under. And so he is just being feted and wooed at, at big celebration dinners. <clears throat> Pardon me. And he's meeting a group of people whom he kind of affectionately dubs the old settlers, right? Part of that first wave of colonization. And they speak to him in terms that are very reminiscent of James Fenimore Cooper's romantic idealization of American Indians about Australian aboriginals, right? You know, that that they're gone now, you know, but what wonderful people they were. And my God, they could track an animal, you know, through the bush with just, you know, uncanny skill. So all of this serves to kind of pique Mark Twain's curiosity about the aboriginals. He never manages to see any in Australia, but that whets his appetite to make sure that he that doesn't happen on the next leg of his trip, which is to New Zealand, right? And he he makes it a point to seek out Maori people, right, to visit their their villages and to learn as much about them as, as he can. Now, the, the way that, the, that Following the Equator and More Tramps Abroad um, was composed is unusual for Mark Twain because he was, he was a very intuitive writer. And so he would write and write and write, and then he would say, if the tank is dry, you just have to put your manuscript aside, give it some time, and the tank will fill back up again. Well, he didn't have that luxury with following the equator because, again, of the bankruptcy. He's writing under a deadline. But also at the very end of the World Lecture Tour, the family is struck by tragedy. And that is that his oldest daughter, Susie, who did not join the family on the tour, died very suddenly in Hartford of spinal meningitis. So the book is written in this cloud of grief. Um, I mean, to my mind, I, it's, it's a miracle that the book ever sort of sees the light of day, that he was able to, uh, to work through that grief and, and produce uh, a book. But what you have is two works, right, because of the variation between the two texts that are very uneven 
and contain glancing illusions. I, what, I, what I say in my book is that there is a kind of Native American subtext throughout Following the Equator and More Tramps Abroad that bubbles to the surface from time to time. So for example, when he's talking about the Aboriginal's tracking abilities, he says, <clears throat> pardon me, James Fenimore, Fenimore Cooper would have traded his brightest mohawk for an Aborigine. You know, so we know that he's aware of the parallels, but he will not delve into them for reasons that, you know, are, are inexplicable, right? He left no explanation. There's nothing in a letter or a notebook about, I can't really deal with this, right? But it's, it's evident, and especially from some marginalia in the titles of the books that, that I had mentioned a moment ago, um, he sees, this is just like our Indians, you know, he writes, but he won't explore that analogy. So after his arrival in New, New Zealand, how did Mark Twain initially gain knowledge about uh, Maori material culture, gender practices, and enfranchisement during the 1895 lecture tour and museum visitations? So um, in your response, if you can briefly address his uh, shifting ways of knowing the Maori by assessing his interactions with those colonial elite, yes, if you want to call yes. them uh, go-between. Yeah, and I realized that I, in my previous answer, I didn't address the proclamation board, which is uh, something that he, he sees in the museum in Hobart, Tasmania. Uh, and it's a very sort of idealized representation of the colonial um, encounter, so to speak, right, of reciprocity and uh, fair dealings. And it, it, again, it very much intrigues him and uh, fosters a desire to know more. And I, I think that when he leaves Australia and he's actually, you know, kind of on the boat on, on route to, to uh, first the island of Tasmania and then to New Zealand, he realizes that he has missed an opportunity, right? That he did not seek out aboriginals. Uh, he relies instead on the impressions conveyed to him by his colonial hosts that, oh, they're being so well taken care of on these government reserves, you know, sad what happened to them, but inevitable. And he accepts that, but now he wants to see firsthand. And so he actually meets uh, a journalist on the boat to the South Island, and his name is Malcolm Ross. And Ross says, you know, he, he expresses an interest in learning about the Maori uh, while he's visiting in New Zealand. And Ross, I believe, facilitates that, right? He puts him in touch with a very important collector, a doctor whose name was Thomas Moreland Hawken. And he actually, in, in my mind, uh, escorts Clemens and his wife to Hawkins' home, which was uh, a kind of de facto museum of, of Maori artifacts. And um, he introduces him to Hawken, and then Hawken connects him with uh, another man who lives in, in Christchurch, whose um, name is Joseph Kinsey, right? another collector. What's significant about these men, uh, and I, I trace this in great detail in uh, chapter eight of, of my book, is that these are all upper-class 
Europeans. Of the group, the only one who's actually born in New Zealand is Malcolm Ross, but he, of course, is of Scottish descent. Uh, And they are real pillars of the community. Uh, Joseph Kinsey, for example, was a shipping magnate. Uh, John Logan Campbell, whom he meets in in Auckland, one of the original founders of the city of, of Auckland. You know, these are very wealthy, upper class individuals, the kind of people that Mark Twain had a sort of inherent respect for, right? I mean, here he is bankrupt, you know, at the virtual ends of the earth, and he's meeting these very successful, highly regarded people who have nothing but praise for the Maori, you know, talking about their skills in architecture, um, in art, that they are a very civilized group of people. And this really uh, begins to unsettle uh, a sort of entrenched notion that, that Twain has had for decades about this binary between the civilized and the savage. Um, the Maori are enfranchised. There are, you know, not only are the Maori men permitted to vote, but the women are too. So they're light years ahead of both the United States and England, and they have representation in parliament, right? So this is, I think, mind-boggling in in a lot of ways for for Clemens. And he really is intrigued. Um, He wants to learn more about the Maori language, On one of his train journeys, there are a group of Maori in the compartment with him, and he's eavesdropping as they're they're speaking in in their native tongue and writing in his notebook, you know, about how how musical the, the language is. And this all, I think, sort of reaches a climax when he undertakes a um a solo visit on the North Island to a Maori council house. Um, And he is, you know, looking at the moku, right, the facial, the traditional uh, facial tattooing uh, of of the Maori and and saying, this is beautiful. This This is so, you know, in comparison, the unadorned European face looks savage. So, so things really begin to tilt for, for Twain in New Zealand and and he visits so he's taken through the south island you know to various museums and encountering these maori artifacts and then when he gets to the north island he's pretty much left to his own devices and i find that to be very suggestive because he's been tutored by his colonial hosts but then once he's on his own he's free to interpret himself, what he sees. And sometimes he misunderstands, all right, as he does famously um, in, I believe it's called Mochua Gardens uh, in the city of Fanganui, all right, where he encounters a monument uh, that, you know, that he describes as, um, you know, treachery, right? It's a monument to, uh, to, you know, disloyalty. And he's on the side of the Maori rather than the colonial oppressors. 
So one would think, uh, I'm sorry, do you want to say something? Uh, I was, you're probably just going to answer my question. Okay. Uh, You know, one would think that on this basis, returning to the United States, right? And, and this, he's very, one thing about Mark Twain is that his views are paradoxical. They are not easy to reconcile because they're fluid, right? So, you know, as the result of the World Lecture Tour, he begins to question British imperialism. He, there are some passages of, of sort of excoriating anger about the mistreatment uh, of both the Maori and the Aboriginals by the, the, the British government and, and the military, right? One would think that having had that experience, that when he returns to the United States in 19 19- that he would be able to connect the dots because the circumstances of Native Americans were so closely analogous to what what he had observed in Australia and New Zealand, and yet he doesn't, certainly not in print. Whether privately he's able to acknowledge this. Yeah, go on. I found that so baffling. It's absolutely baffling. It was just a, he couldn't manage to overcome that resistance, whatever it was rooted in. And, and if you think about, you know, he, he has a very long career. His earliest newspaper publications date from the early 1850s, and he dies in April 1910, and he's actively writing until, until the end. So it's almost 60 years. And that is such a pivotal period in terms of what's happening to Native peoples in the United States. I mean, we've got Little Big Horn. We've got Wounded Knee. I mean, the, the circumstances of what is happening to you know, Native autonomy um, the population decline, the, the attempted genocide, etc. He, you know, their circumstances change so radically that one would think he would be able to relinquish that animus or that antipathy, and yet he doesn't. You know, except for these moments that I've described, right? These short-lived epiphanies where you have an outburst of sympathy. Um, that time and time again, I would hope, ah, this is the turning point, and then inevitably a kind of backslide. Yeah, uh, for our final prompt, can you uh, please very briefly uh, provide examples of his continuing ambivalence towards Native Americans, particularly in Letters from the Earth and Instructions in Art? Okay, uh, Letters from the Earth is a piece written in the last few months of his life and remained unpublished until 1962. Uh, so, you know, this is something he really never intended for, uh, for the eyes of, of his readers. Uh, Instructions in Art is a very lighthearted piece that appeared in a magazine in, uh, in 1903, I believe. And, you know, he loved to, to draw throughout his life. And he was actually pretty good as, as a caricaturist, but he also loved to make fun of his drawings. You know, he would say, he would claim, I have aspirations of becoming an artist. So I'm thinking of um, the 1880 travelogue, A Tramp Abroad, right, that actually reproduces some of his, his line drawings. So in Instructions in Art, he, uh, which is a very sort of fun, lighthearted piece, 
he talks about being an artist and he includes various illustrations with advice. So, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to do a portrait, make sure you put the head on the same canvas that you put the bust. I mean, just silly, you know, inane things like that. But then he gets to a point where he says, I want to show you now sort of the best image my pen ever produced. And he wanted it to be Eve, right? The mother of us all. And then he says, well, but you know, things started to go wrong. And then I decided that it would be Queen Elizabeth, right? But I couldn't quite manage to do the the ruffled collar, right? And then then I, well, it'll be Pocahontas, right? And then it ends up sitting bull. It's just, I mean, you know, what happens, right? I mean, chronology, right? Ethnicity, gender, everything goes out the window. And the way that I read this image is that this is, I think, where Twain kind of ends up, right? In a kind of relativism, right? Where he says, you know, the deity doesn't, you know, what is race, right? You know, um, it doesn't matter to the deity's skin color, right? It's we're all sort of the same underneath. However, right, Letters from the Earth ends with a passage about the 1862 Minnesota uprising, and it is an atrocity tale. The source of this is Colonel Richard Irving Dodge, right, who I mentioned earlier, the Plains of the Great West and their inhabitants. And it talks about Indians bursting into a farmhouse and, you know, crucifying the parents, nailing them to the walls of of their their residence. And then, you know, it's horrible. I mean, cutting cutting off the breasts of the daughters and, you know, repeated um, gang rape, etc., Okay, so as he narrates this uh, gruesome atrocity tale, he does say this, having been deeply wronged and treacherously treated by the government of the United States, which indicates that the Indian's vengeance, which in previous works he had indicated as simply gratuitous, right, in, say, Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer among the Indians. There's absolutely no cause for, for the slaughter that he describes in, in that work. That here, in this instance, it was rooted in a justifiable cause. And then he links this to uh, something, uh, an, an incident from the Old Testament, the Midianite massacre. And he says that, you know, the Indians were actually, um, that the destruction, right, uh, the savagery of the Indians was not as reprehensible as that of the Israelites because uh, they burned some but not all of their enemies' homes. They stole livestock but killed none, and they sold no virgins into slavery. Um, The Indians were better, Twain argues, because they killed the women after raping them, charitably making their subsequent sufferings brief and ending them with the precious gift of death. So, you know, what in the larger context of of this passage in Letters from the Earth, Twain makes an indictment that does abolish the distinction between civilization and savagery, right? So that it's human nature, right? Not Indians, regardless of race, ethnicity, culture, or creed, 
that is universally brutal and debased. But, you know, that, it was difficult for me to reckon with that piece because it comes so late in Twain's career. Um, I really wish that he didn't write it, um, that I would have been able to end on a more uplifting note saying that, you know, he never quite overcame this, this bias, but he made some checkered progress. But Letters from the Earth sort of lands an insurmountable wrench in, in that narrative. So, you know, as I, as I say in my conclusion, you know, it's, I don't know why he never was able to, to kind of exercise this. And so if you put those views in the context of his attitudes about African-Americans, we really can see how, you know, he was light years ahead in terms of how he thought about Blacks versus Indians. And I think, you know, not to be simplistic or reductive, it has something to do with familiarity. You know, growing up in a slaveholding family, growing up in a slaveholding community, the presence of Blacks, but also the docility of, of Blacks as an oppressed people, it, it made it easier for him to, to see their humanity. Whereas the the presence, the lurking presence of Indians on the periphery of Hannibal, sort of, you know, itinerant bands coming through the region, coupled with the story of the Montgomery Massacre, the reading that he's doing, both the romantic views of, of Indians, but then the, the newspaper reports of atrocity, it, it created a space in which they, they could become these kind of... I don't want to call them boogeymen, but but kind of antagonists, right? I mean, real sort of ideological antagonists. So for uh, the final question, what's going on with you uh, next? Are you working on any uh, additional projects related to Mark Twain or any other topic? Well, I, I work on Mark Twain every single day in, in my new job, so uh, <laughs> I, I can't seem to escape him. But I am, uh, I am working on, on a new book, and it is going to be about uh, a particular um, relationship or organization that he, he had in, in Hartford uh, with a group called the Saturday Morning Club, which was a, a group of, of young women that he... Uh, got very involved with and, um, you know, attempted to, we, we often don't think of Twain as, um, as a feminist, right? Someone who, you know, he's, he's kind of you know, dead white guy, patriarchal, etc. But my research about his involvement with this group is, has led me to some surprising insights that, that challenge that narrative. So I, that's what I'm interested in doing is to kind of uh, complicate our understanding of this American icon. We hope you remember uh, New Books in History for that project. I will, indeed. So, uh, the book is uh, Mark Twain Among the Indians and Other Indigenous Peoples, published last year by University of California Press, but uh, in paperback this year. On behalf of Professor Driscoll, this has been a production of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Please tune in next time.